everyone, and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the scandalous and interesting side of history. Uh, we are in spring. It's May. We're back with another new episode for you, and we are really excited about today's topic. First and foremost, though, let us introduce ourselves. I am Becca. And I'm Rebecca. And together we are the Rebecca. <laughs> Um, we are uh, in here in spring. It's May, uh, the month of my birth. Uh, it is a nice time of year to be in Washington, D.C. If you are visiting D.C., if you're planning your summer vacation and you're thinking about coming, come join us for a tour. We are going to be in a full spring tour schedule, full summer tour schedule, seven days a week, morning, noon, and night. You can check us out on dcbyfoot.com. You can request a private tour. You can join a public tour. We have audio tours, self-guided tours. Um, we have a lot for you. We also have a Facebook group where you can join and get tips on traveling to Washington, D.C. So we'll make sure to put links to all of that in our show notes, but definitely come check us out. As much as we love talking to you on the podcast, we really love talking to you in person on tour. So we hope if you're planning a, a summer trip, you'll come visit us. A special thank you as well to our patrons who really are the heart and soul of this podcast, who help this podcast go, uh, keep it going even during these busy, busy times of year. Um, patrons get special patron-only episodes. This month, a very special episode all about Memorial Day and its origins and background. So um, if you're not a patron, it's never too late to join. You can check us out. There's all kinds of special benefits for patrons, including free tours. So you definitely want to check that out. Um, we are, uh, as I mentioned, in May. Memorial Day is right around the corner, um, and we have touched on um, some Memorial Day-themed topics in the past. This is not our first sort of Memorial Day-adjacent episode. So we've do, we do um, Arlington Cemetery, I think, for Memorial Day, because it's there's so much history at Arlington. And we've done a couple of uh, Arlington-themed episodes. We have done an episode about um, Jimmy Doolittle and Audie Murphy. We did an episode about uh, African Americans at Arlington Cemetery. And last Memorial Day, we talked about the... Um, uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and the centenary of the tomb. We talked about how to become a tomb guy or guard and the, all the uh, rules and regulations about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. So those we've done a little bit at Arlington. There is always so much to talk about because really the whole of American history is represented in some way uh, at Arlington Cemetery. And so this year for Memorial Day, we thought we'd talk a little bit about astronauts because they're at Arlington too. First of all, astronauts are just cool. Yeah. <laughs> they're just um, super awesome. And um, there are quite a few at Arlington. There's almost 20 astronauts laid to rest at Arlington, which in the grand scheme of over 400,000 individuals may not seem like a lot. But in terms of how many people have actually been astronauts, almost 20 astronauts buried at Arlington is quite a lot. It is quite a lot. There are the a lot of the early space program, they drew from uh, heavily from Air Force and Army pilots. And so that's kind of makes a natural uh, progression to why they're at Arlington. There are uh, several, not only graves, but there are also markers uh, to do with the space program, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and just to give you like a, a taste, to date, 12 men, and they've all been men, uh, have walked on the moon. Four of them are still living at the time of this recording at any rate. Buzz Aldrin is 92 years young. Uh, and um, so of the eight that are deceased, four of them are buried at Arlington National Cemetery. So that's half uh, of the men who walked uh, on the moon uh, that are 
deceased are buried at Arlington, which is kind of amazing. And there's a bunch of other astronauts. You don't have to go to the moon to be an astronaut. So there's a bunch of other astronauts that are buried at Arlington as well. And so we thought we would talk a little bit about them because astronauts are cool and going into space is frightening and cool all at the same time. Um, just a little bit of background for everybody. NASA is created in July of 1958 uh, by Eisenhower, actually. And it is created in the midst of the Cold War. It is created to the Soviets, uh, who are our sort of enemies. They are trying to go to space as well. And there's this sort of space race that sort of dominates the late 50s into the 60s. And uh, NASA is sort of created to basically make that happen. And um, they're going to draw heavily on the on pilots from the Air Force and the Army, uh, pilots that had combat experience both in World War II and Korea, and it makes a natural sort of jumping off point. You know that they are in physically good condition. You know that they can fly. Uh, there's a bunch of different um, uh, sort of criteria, and no one's ever been in space before, so it seems like these would probably be the best people to do it about the closest thing we have to going like well they've been up about halfway so let's just get them all the way up there yeah and and we forget um how like daredevilish and kind of crazy piloting a plane was still in the 40s the 30s 40s 50s um if you were a pilot this was not as nearly like regulated and automated and safe as it is today so if you were a pilot in these wars, you were someone who had a sense of adventure and a risk taker. You were on the edge of new emerging technology. So those are the, exactly the kinds of minds and personalities you would want to launch this brand new exactly program and this whole new leap into a whole new technological frontier. Right. You already have people who are, you know, take risks and who apparently like going very fast. Um, and, you know, it's, Frightening to the rest of us, probably for them too, I would imagine. But um, there's actually one of the stories that I love. Um, if you've ever heard of the pilot Chuck Yeager, who's the first a person to break the sound barrier, he was an illustrious fighter pilot in World War II as well. He was asked and approached to be part of sort of the development of NASA. And he was like, nah, I don't want to be. Like, as a pilot, I fly the plane. I'm in charge. As an astronaut, you're kind of just a passenger. And so he kind of passes uh, on the idea of being in NASA and remains a pilot. Uh, so there's a lot of, um, not everybody went into NASA. Um, NASA is going to start operations. It's formed in July of 1958. It doesn't actually like open up until October 1st, 1959. Has 8,000 employees and a budget of $100 million, which is a lot of money. Uh, NASA- Especially in this era, yes. that is- mind-boggling. Yes, and it shows you just how like vital and important this was perceived to be. This is perceived to be top priority by the Eisenhower administration. NASA is going to ask the service branches to provide a list of personnel who meet the criteria they're looking for. They want qualified jet pilots. Now, I will also mention this. We're the dawn of the jet age as far as military technology. The jets te- jet technology develops after World War II, so we're really only a decade or so into this idea. And jet technology is not like a normal, flying a normal plane. To fly a normal plane, you need training, of course you do. But jet technology, you're going faster. So you need to be trained on the G-forces and the sort of, you know, different, your body gets sort of thrown around differently in a jet. And so that's 
very important. They want a minimum of 1,500 hours of flying time in a jet uh, in order to become part of uh, the sort of first NASA class. So this is a big deal. This is why so many uh, of the first NASA astronauts are going to be pilots. They already have flight time. It's also why there are not going to be any women uh, in space until the 80s. Sally Ride will be the first uh, woman in space in 1983. So, um, and Sally Ride is still with us. Uh, and so that's going to be um, uh, why there are no women in space for a while. They drew so heavily from the services. And so there's a couple of fighter, uh, former fighter pilots that kind of become famous for astronaut reasons. Uh, and the first one is probably someone that I bet everybody listening to this podcast has heard of, John Glenn. John Glenn. Uh, John Glenn was a very decorated fighter pilot. Uh, he was through 59 combat missions in World War II and then another 90 in Korea. Uh, so he's like got a ton of flying time. He's incredibly brave. He's a naval test pilot. Uh, he has the first transcontinental supersonic flight in 1957. And so it is a natural next stop for him to go into this sort of uh, space, uh, to go into the NASA and the space administration. He's going to be part of the Mercury program, which is the very first uh, one of NASA's original projects. Uh, Mercury um, astronauts, he becomes the first um, American to orbit the Earth in 1962. Uh, and he goes up in the pod, and the pod is today actually preserved at the Aerospace Museum when it's open. Uh, and it is teeny. And John Glenn was kind of teeny. He's not a big guy. He's not John as Glenn big as five, like Lindbergh six. or some of these other figures that we talk about uh, at the Aerospace Museum. When you see it, though, I mean, it's bonkers to me to think that you would even go on, say, a roadway with it, let alone out into the orbit with it. Um, but he always said you didn't get in it. You put it on. That's how yeah, he described it, like putting on a coat. Which, which gives you a sense of how small this was. And so he's basically going to put it on. You kind of squeeze into this. And it's a teeny pod. And he goes up. And he orbits Earth three times, like once three circles around the Earth, I should, I should clarify. And it was originally, the mission was supposed to be five orbits, but uh, they were worried about the technology breaking down. And so they pulled him down after the third rotation. And one of the things that kind of makes me amazed about this flight is, first of all, they didn't think through entirely a bathroom plan for while he was up there which must have been a bummer. Uh, and the other thing is they were very concerned about what the lack of gravity, the change in gravity would do to his eyeballs. And so they're worried, that was the only thing they really couldn't figure out how to test for. And so they're worried that his eyeballs will distort and he won't be able to see, which obviously seeing is kind of a big deal. And so they're going to send him up with, among other instruments, they sent him up with an eye doctor's chart in his pod. And every few minutes, the, he has, they tell him to cover an eye and literally, like when you go to the eye doctor, read the letters in the third line or whatever it is. And that's sort to of supposed sure to be how he's supposed to know if it's like a bore, get, you know, in this yes. mission. Yeah. Because if, if he, he can't, can't read, see. he's having trouble reading a certain level of the chart, then they have to stop, which I love this because it's all that element is so low tech. It's like, here's a chart mm -hmm. and you just test yourself. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fine. What could possibly go wrong? And it's really amazing to me that, like, going up there um, 
and orbiting the Earth. He also will remark that um, it's daytime in the U.S. when he does this, but it's such a highly publicized event that it's obviously not daytime everywhere in the world. And people in Australia will turn on their lights, like, en masse, so that when he, like, goes over Australia, he can say, oh, okay, I'm, I, this is where I am. So it's this big world event, and he comes back to Earth, and he goes on a sort of a, the, what they call the fourth rotation, uh, which is this sort of world tour, and he goes all the way around the world and he's on a parade with President Kennedy and it's a big deal and he becomes legitimately like this huge superstar. To me, it uh, is so very was, similar yeah. to sort of the response to Charles Lindbergh in terms of, you know, it's an accomplishment for the United States and it's a big, big win for us and for the individual, but the world really embraces this leap forward and it, he, he becomes this worldwide phenomenon and this like kind of yes. global figure because of it. Yes. Most of the globe. The Soviets aren't yeah, as impressed. Sorry, to be fair, not so much the Soviets, <laughs> but other places. People are yes. really excited about what this represents and what this means. And it's also a big deal because the Soviets are kicking our butts as far as the space program at first. Like, whatever your sports metaphor, they're scoring a lot of touchdowns or home runs or whatever it is. They have... You know, they put the first sat unmanned satellite up. They put the first dog in space. They put the first man in space. Like, they're winning, and we're not. And this is, obviously, this cannot stand. You know, we're the USA. We've got to, like, do something. And so John Glenn is the first sort of step in the effort to, like, achieve parody, you know, to strike back and score touchdowns of our own, as it were. Uh, and so John Glenn becomes this big sort of hero. And he's going to, because he's amazingly smart, he's going to, like, retire and uh, become a businessman. He serves four terms as a senator from Ohio. So he's uh, an incredibly good le and sort of valued legislator for a long time. And then he returns to space. In 1998, at age 77. Incredible. And just for a minute, imagine, for all of you who are no longer young, which is me and Becca, uh, imagine the sh getting into that kind of shape to go, because you can't just go into space. You have to, like, train for this. You have to be in shape to do this. This is not, like, you know, just kind of sitting around. He's in space for nine days at age 77. Uh, on the Discovery mission in 1998. He's, it's remarkable. He was, up until extremely recently, the oldest human being to go into space. I think William Shatner uh, broke that record last summer uh, when he went into, sort of went into space. Sort of, kind of. Uh, but, kind of. <laughs> And I remember, I remember Glenn going back so vividly because I was in middle school at the time and it was just like, you know, it was so exciting because it felt like certainly by this era of the dawn of the millennium that we weren't doing as many manned sort of missions and, you know, we'd hit a lot of those check marks and then Glenn going was so, people were so excited. Uh, it was such a big deal. I also remember very vividly when he died. Yes. Um, in uh, 2016 at age... 95. He's buried at Arlington. His wife, Annie, his wife of 74 years, I love that. joined him a few years later. They are near the tomb, actually, near the tomb of the Unknowns. Yes, if you visit Arlington, um, it is very close to the tomb of the Unknown Soldier. 95. Whole, it's an incredible American life, I think. Just like, just such a great American existence. The whole, like, 
American century. It's so great. John Glenn's amazing. The next two people we're going to talk about are twin together uh, forever. Um, their names are Gus Grissom and Roger Chaffee. And they are eventually going to be part of the Apollo, what's called the Apollo 1 disaster. So Gus Grissom, first of all, his first name is Virgil. Uh, Gus apparently was a nickname. He was another fighter pilot. Uh, he's a Mercury 7, same as John Glenn. Uh, he was sort of the, if you ever read or seen the movie The Right Stuff, uh, that is about them and uh, five other people. Uh, it is, um, he is uh, very much a big deal. He flew a hundred missions, combat missions in uh, Korea. So he was, he then tested fighter jets. So again, this is the dawn of the jet age. He's going to be on the forefront of this technology. He is an illustrious and decorated fighter pilot. And so the natural next step for him is going to be to go into uh, space. It's, you know, again, emerging technology, clearly. Uh, he in, on the 21st, of July 1961 becomes the second NASA astronaut in space. So the first is Alan Shepard, uh, and the second is uh, Gus Grissom. He piloted the Gemini 3 on the 23rd of March 1965, becoming the first American to go into space twice. Roger Chaffee is part of NASA's third group of astronauts. So he's like a couple years after Glenn and Grissom. Uh, he was a um, selected as a capsule communicator or CAPCOM uh, for the Gemini 4 mission in 1865. So basically, CAPCOM is the guy on the ground who's listening to them. So he's talking to them. Um, and he's selected for the first Apollo mission. So this is going to be the Apollo 1. We're moving into a new phase uh, of uh, space travel. There's going to be going up um, the Apollo missions. Eventually, at this point, we are trying to fulfill President Kennedy's wish to go to the moon. And so Apollo is going to be sort of the next step in that process. Um, on the 27th of January, 1967, they are doing a launch rehearsal. The launch rehearsal is going to happen a couple of days later, or the launch is going to happen a couple of days later. And uh, Gus Grissom, Roger Chaffee, and Ed White are the three Apollo astronauts who are in the capsule. And the capsule catches fire inside. And um, they're on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral. They are not in space. They are in Florida. And they can't, because the door to the capsule opened in, the physics of the fire and how hot it was and how like how much the air pressure was, they could not get the door to open in towards them. And so all three of them die. Um, it, it one result, this is going to be a big deal for the space program. A huge deal. It's the it first, it's a huge, tragedy. it's the first big disaster. It's the first time yes. that something that they have been developing and working with, goes wrong in a bad way and they rethink a lot this is going to be it's a, a terrible tragedy but it also is going to be a massive learning moment for nasa for the space program for understanding materials design uh, and really thinking through safety in a way that they had not considered strongly up to this point yes the safety of the, the individuals. way that the safety of the individual and one of the things that this tells nasa is look our reach is exceeding our grasp you know, we are trying to do more than we can technologically. We need to take a step back. We're public about this. This is the other sort of factor here. The Soviets, because they're the Soviet Union, they're not public about their space program. It's sort of all done in shadows and kind of hidden. But because we're a democracy, we do this in full view of the press. This is all sort of 
very much on public display. And you can imagine, if you didn't live through it, uh, how these astronauts are heroes. This is a big deal. And these men are being watched and sort of, you know, talked about. And for this to happen really says to NASA, okay, we need to take a deep breath. Like if we're going to go to the moon and we can't get these guys off the launch pad, that's big. And one of the very direct results of this is that now to this day, all space shuttle doors open out so that in the event of a fire, you can just blow out the door and escape because that would have saved all of their lives. The other, I think, huge change is the spacesuits because prior to this, they're using nylon, which is highly flammable and seems like a very dangerous choice in retrospect. And they're going to change to something that's called beta cloth, which is essentially melt resistant. It is meant to really withstand to give you enough time to get out of that door, um, as opposed to you catching on fire immediately, which when you think back and you go nylon, that's not something I would want if I were going to do and to mix the the mix of what's in the cabin itself. So it's not pure oxygen, um, which is also in and of itself highly flammable. So um, as much as this is a terrible tragedy and absolutely is, the lessons that are learned from this are going to ensure that we can continue forward, that other men and women will be able to go to space safely. Yes, and NASA makes a very good, it is a tragedy, and but NASA learns from it, and they very much point to this as a learning moment for them, and that these, these three men are, they're all decorated, uh, they all are, two of the three of them are buried, Roger Chaffee and um, Gus Grissom are buried next to each other, actually, at Arlington uh, in Section 3, uh, Ed White is buried elsewhere, uh, but they are, they're sort of still venerated as sort of being these, you know, a lot of what they, their sacrifice sort of pushed NASA in a more safe direction and sort of saved the lives of a lot of men and women, eventually, who came after them, so uh, the Apollo 1 disaster is a really pivotal moment uh, in NASA's history. And the next thing I want to talk about actually does have a connection to the Apollo 1 disaster, uh, Stu Rusa. Stu Rusa is part of the same astronaut class as Roger Chaffee, 1966. He had actually been a smoke jumper prior to entering the Air Force, which means like he would jump into a fire and try to put it out, which sounds, you know, dangerous. Daredevils. These guys are daredevils. <laughs> daredevils. They're like the cowboys of space, man. It's cool. He was um, the capsule communicator, Capcom, for the Apollo 1 disaster. So he's the guy who's got them in his ears. He's listening to this the whole time. The fire, their panic, the screams. He's hearing this. All of it. And it amazes me that he just kept going. Like having this real-time example of how really dangerous this is. He's going to just say, okay, well, got to keep going. Someone's going to do it. It might as well be me. He goes into the Apollo 14 mission uh, to the moon. And by this time, the to, when you go into space in the Apollo program, and this is true of all six of the manned missions to the, the moon, there are three guys that do it. Two of them go in the lunar module down to the moon and do experiments. And later on, they have the lunar rover and they kind of go joyriding. But the third guy orbits the moon. And that, for the Apollo 14 mission, that's Stu Rusa. So he never set foot on the moon. 
but he orbited the moon solo orbit for like 33 hours. He conducted experiments. The other thing that he's going to do is carry tree seeds with him, all different kinds of trees. And um, they come back and they're going to be germinated later. And they're now moon trees. And they're like distributed all over the country. There's one in Philadelphia at a park near the um, historic district. They're kind of all over the place. Moon trees are very cool. And I just want to jump in to say that like so much of the impetus for the development of the space program is absolutely from a national defense perspective, right? This is, we are in the Cold War with the Soviet unions. There's a huge military and defense reason to go to space, but there also, especially in this era of the space program, is such an interest in experimentation, in scientific research and knowledge for science sake. And I think this kind of partnership between NASA and the Forest Service where he brings the seeds is such a beautiful example of that. Like there's no military advantage to being like, can we germinate these seeds that have been to the moon? <laughs> but I, it's really, I love it. It's to me such a beauty of the space program is that like a chance to do this kind of experimentation, which may not have any clear sort of defensive reason to be done, but is simply just for the pursuit of knowing like what would happen if we tried to make a tree right. that had been to the moon. Can we do this? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that. we can. Because cool. it, it, we shouldn't underplay. This is this is part of the Cold War. There's absolutely a, a national defense element to this. Um, that militarizing of space is not a new concept or concern. <laughs> no, it is not, and it's not a new like the idea that the this is a military and a defense is obviously its primary purpose. But it's also I love the idea that we're just gonna do some if we can fit some fun stuff in we're going to do that too it's really cool. and this is just a chance to to learn and discover and explore in a brand new way and i, I love this is one of my favorite little tidbits is the moon trees because it's just so yes. cute it's so adorable um he's the backup for apollo 16 and 17 and would have been would have commanded one of the last missions if they hadn't been canceled so we go to the moon six times apollo 11 12 14 15 16 17 Notice we skip 13. There's a whole movie about it. You should watch it. Um, and then we kind of get bored and move on. Like we go to the moon six times in like three and a half years. The last time is in December 1972 and we've never been back. Just haven't, haven't done it. Um, and so Stu Russo is the kind of guy who gets sort of lost because if there had been an Apollo 18 or 19 mission, he would have commanded them and been on the moon. Uh, but as such, that isn't how it ended out for him. Uh, 217 hours logged in space. When he dies, he is buried in the same section as both Jimmy Doolittle and uh, Joe Lewis, actually. So he's in a prominent spot, sort of at the base of the hill. He's got a private headstone, which means he's not in a government issue rounded headstone like Gus Grissom and John Glenn. He has a private headstone and he also has on his headstone, which I think is really cool, the astronaut's medal. So when you're an astronaut, it is the least awarded merit medal in the entire military because uh, you obviously need some special sciencey stuff to do it. And there's but just not that many of them. Lost. There's not that many of them, no. But he had that embossed on his headstone. So if you want to see both students, and there's a Apollo... Um, he had a Apollo um, space capsule sort of. Yeah, he is probably, uh, although the name would be maybe not as familiar to those who um, only kind of know the, the big names. And when I first started guiding, I was not as familiar with Rusa um, as, as I was with Grissom and Chaffee and some of these other names. Um, but if you are like walking through the cemetery, you're going to know he's an astronaut because it's got that capsule on it. And it's the only one mm. of these astronaut markers 
to have that really explicit representation of like, I was in space. Yes. So you would know that walking by, even if you didn't recognize the name, you'd be like, that guy was an astronaut. Yeah, that guy was in space. There's something spacey here happening. Yeah, it's it's His cool. His section it's actually... also has Lee Marvin and Dashiell Hammett. So let's throw that out there. In addition oh, yes, to Jimmy Doolittle and uh, Joe Lewis. It's a, I always point out that section. I'm like, this is, there's some big, like, this is like a high value section. Noteworthy names. Noteworthy names. And another person I want to talk about uh, was selected with Rusa. His name is James Irwin. James Irwin is not a name that a lot of people know. And here's the thing about the space program. Like, we all have heard of the Apollo 11 astronauts. Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, of course. They're the first ones to walk on the moon. There's the Apollo 12 astronauts. Apollo 13, they had a movie. And when Tom Hanks plays you in the movie... Jim Lovell is still alive, by the way, at the retirement of this recording. Um, when Tom, Tom Hanks plays you in the movie version, like, you've made it in life, right? That's, I feel like, I mean, how many people, real-life people, has Tom Hanks played? It, he played Ben Bradley, who we talked about a while ago. If Tom Hanks plays you in the movie version, you are cool. I feel like we can go on a limb and say that. Um, and then Apollo 14, 15, 16, 17, we don't know. The, these are not necessarily household names, these gentlemen they should be but they're not and they unfortunately you know it's tough sometimes when you're not the first right we tend to yes. remember the first and so mm -hmm. uh even though what they're doing is just as groundbreaking just as dangerous just as important just as scientifically significant because they're not the first or second wave it does just get lost in the sort of conversations yes. we have about the space program and James Irwin is, I think, one of those. He um, He's selected in the same class as Stu Brusa for NASA. And apparently, as a child, he told his mother he wanted to be the first, the wanted to go to the moon. And he was like, well, I might be the first one. He was wrong. He was not. He was the eighth. He was the eighth man to walk on the moon uh, as part of the Apollo 15 mission. Um, he is going to log 295 hours in space, 18 hours on their extravehicular mobility unit, which is basically like kind of a moon ATV, essentially. Like, gravity is less up there, so you kind of just go joyriding on the moon. That's not all they did, obviously. They collected soil samples, they did tests, they did all kinds of scientific things. And they are up there for hours. Like, um, James Irwin is awake for like 23 hours, so like a full day on the moon, and they're doing tests the whole time. And this isn't like, oh, I'm awake studying in my comfy house for 23 hours. This is, I am in an oxygen suit on another heavenly body. I have to be alert and ready and watching what's happening the whole time because this is serious business. And while this is all happening, of course, all of these astronauts have their biomonitors. They're being, their vital signs are being monitored uh, in Houston, which is when where NASA then was, uh, sort of make sure they're you know, breathing and all of the stuff they're supposed to be doing. And James Irwin, while he's standing on the moon, his um, heart monitor starts to, to he develops a, a irregular heart rhythm. And the doctors are called in and the doctors look at his EKG and his, the doctor says, look at, this is not great. If he was my patient, I would tell him to go to the ER right now. Yeah. And as you may know, <laughs> there are not any ERs on the moon. There's no hospitals. <laughs> Uh, no, there's nothing. And this, I feel like, really is such a great illustration of the dangers of space travel. Like, no one's coming for you. There's no cavalry coming over the hill. You either have to figure it out or not. Um, and so, 
I mean, they have people on the ground to help them, obviously, and to sort of tell them, give them advice. But the three guys who are there, they're it. That's it. And so one of the things they do is they bring him back to the command module and they put him at, and he's at zero gravity. So zero G means the, is the best they can do for his heart. It's, they say, well, at least he's already at zero G that reduces a lot of the stress on his heart. They put him in a chamber with a hundred percent oxygen and both of those things are going to stabilize his heart. So the uh, rhythm goes away. He avoids a heart attack. He comes back down to earth now, obviously, he's got a heart condition, so he's not going ever back into space. That's that part of his uh, career is done. Uh, they say they tell him that this is not a recurring condition, but he has an actual heart attack like two years later, the first of three. He's going to have a bypass at some point. He uh, becomes a religious speaker. He actually was not religious before going into space and then becomes, like he said, being in space sort of inspired um, uh, a lot of faith. And so he kind of goes and heads in that direction. He does develop uh, towards the end of his life a heart condition, uh, dies in 1991, the first and youngest person who walked on the moon to die. And he is also buried at Arlington National Cemetery. I also like to mention he almost dies in a training exercise as well. He's training a pilot in a jet on a plane and the student pilot crashes. And I mean, this is like compound fractures, amnesia to a point. He almost had a leg amputated. Like, and, and this is like a guy who's like at every turn, I feel like there's something that almost killed him. Um, at one point he was summiting a mountain and almost died during a summiting, like mountaineering mountain climbing accident. Like it just kind of like, again, like these, these guys were like cowboys. Uh, and even knowing that he has this sort of heart condition, he doesn't like take it easy. He's like really a goer, uh, through, through the rest of his life. Although as you mentioned, and he still dies quite young. Yes, unfortunately, very, very young. Um, and there's also, you know, Arlington Cemetery has more than one of the things I emphasize on my tours is great. It's obviously a cemetery that's his first and foremost um, duty and job, but it also has various markers to different kinds of events in American life, different parts of the military, different tragedies that we want to remember. And two, because the space program, especially early on, was very closely linked to the military, there are several markers. Uh, and one of the, I know that we both show both of these markers off quite a bit. Uh, they're not graves. No one is buried uh, at either of these. Uh, but there is a memorial to both the Challenger and the Columbia um, space shuttle disasters. And Challenger was 1986, January. And the Challenger, so here's the like TLDR on the Challenger explosion. It takes off and 73 seconds into launch, something called an O-ring, which is a piece of plastic found all over the place. They're basically this, put your thumbs, uh, hands and thumbs make an O. That's basically the size of an O-ring. It is, it, they have them in your car. They have them everywhere. There's plastic. And O-rings and everything that goes into space has been tested multiple times. But normally when you go into space, the things you're worried about are heat. It is very hot. Going into space, you know, you're on a rocket. There's a lot of fire. So they're going to test them at high heats. Uh, they don't test them at freezing temperatures because it's not freezing when you go into space. Uh, it also... They're blasting off from Cape Canaveral, Florida, 
Florida is not cold. It's not known for its freezing temperatures. Not really, no. But but the night before the Challenger it takes off, it dips below freezing, gets to like 28 degrees, which is extremely unusual for Florida. And they didn't test the O-rings. And basically what an O-ring does when it freezes is it contracts. And an O-ring is essentially the sort of stopgap between two parts of a, um, the space shuttle. When it contracts, it allows air to get in places air should not get in. And uh, basically through a bunch of chemical and physical prop- properties we're not going to go into, it essentially turns the Challenger into a bomb. And 73 seconds into the launch, it detonates, killing everyone on board. And this is happening um, on national television because at this point, the challenge, uh, the space program is making a an outreach to science classrooms across the the globe. In fact, they have a civilian on a science teacher on board. Krista McAuliffe was going to be the first civilian in space. Uh, she was going, she won a contest, I think, and was going into space as part of the Challenger crew and her children were watching. And so this is a big deal to be broadcast all there over are, the country. There are schools and school children across the country watching because of this, particularly because of the element of sending a teacher. Um, so yes. it's one of those defining moments. I think if you were a child in the eighties, you probably remember watching this happen in your classroom. I have the vaguest memory of this. I was just too young to really remember it, but I remember going into the, the media center. My, I have older friends that remember not understanding why their teachers started freaking out because when you're a kid, you didn't know it wasn't supposed to do that. Right. Like, you know, that's how it's supposed to look. And the thing is we have this memory, like everybody who's like Gen X has this very like searing memory of this. And the, it is assumed because of that, that the whole world was watching. It actually was not like the sort of wider world. Our parents weren't watching this. This was kids. These are people who were in school. They were brought into their media center and watched this on like a little television because it was still the mid eighties. Uh, and so the, there, it's a sort of very generationally uh, of a moment. Like if you were, you know, born in the seventies and were in school at the time, you probably have a memory of this. If you were a parent and like had a job at that time in the eighties, you probably don't. Um, the Columbia is a little later, 2003. Going to space is tricky, y'all. Um, here's the getting back. Everything is tricky about it. Most be, Getting into space is the hard part. You need most of your fuel to get out of Earth's atmosphere. Once you get into space, you don't actually need as much fuel to get around. But getting back in Earth's atmosphere is also pretty tricky. You have to take re-entry at exactly the right angle. You take the re-entry too wide, you basically bounce off of Earth's atmosphere and then you're back in space and you don't have enough fuel saved up to try again. If you take the re-entry angle too narrowly, you get caught in Earth's atmosphere and essentially disintegrate, which is what happened in the Columbia. They basically took their angle of re-entry too narrowly. They disintegrate uh, in um, 2003 coming back from their mission. So they completed their mission. And to add to a complication, something that can happen is during your launch, you have to sincerely hope that nothing about your shuttle gets damaged 
Um, and that is yeah. what is determined after the fact is that there had been a compromise to the thermal protection system, which is exactly what you need when you're hitting that reentry. So something that had been damaged in launch is going to be a problem upon reentry. Um, so that adds sort of an additional layer of, of difficulty there. Um, this of course, means that those on board Columbia are killed. Um, they also lose almost all of the scientific payload that they were bringing back. So much of the research and work that they had done is lost. I remember this very distinctly because um, the craft disintegrates uh, and falls to earth. A lot of it scatters along Texas. Uh, mm -hmm. And so there was for several weeks sort of this like recover, well, months really recovery efforts to go and recover what they could. Uh, and Columbia, I mean, it had flown many, many missions, almost 30 missions to space. Um, so you can imagine people are thinking that this is a shuttle that we know what we're doing. We we, we, yeah. we know it can go there and back, it's fine. Uh, and it's really going to be the Columbia disaster that makes NASA reevaluate the space shuttle program in general at writ large on if this is the best way in the 21st century to be exploring space. And so Challenger had actually done a number of missions too, I think 10 or 12. Um, so NASA, after the Apollo program, moves into uh, the idea of sort of reusable. It's not quite the word that they use, but basically you have the space shuttle and you bring it back and forth and can use it more than once. And so they have like Sally Ride's first, uh, the first woman to go into space was on the Challenger. Um, she goes into space three years before the Challenger uh, explodes. And so these are, this, if you've ever seen the Space Shuttle Discovery, if you've ever come to DC and seen it uh, out the um, Air and Space Museum, the, the sort of annex, uh, that's, they again, several missions into space uh, in the same one. And I feel like this is the Columbia, what that tells NASA is you cannot relax with this for even a moment. Yeah. This is all serious. You have to run all the safety checks all the time because even one like thing can go wrong and there again no one is coming to help like this is it so I feel like that's kind of what the Columbia does and the Challenger as well is like you need to be sure every time you go into space because this is going to happen it, it is very dangerous and it's going to happen on national television too so this is like a big it will set back the space program every time this happens so those are next to each other the two memorials at arlington are next to each other right behind the tomb of the unknown soldier they're right across so from the are. entrance to the memorial amphitheater if you're ever there they're very close to the memorial to the uss maine uh, i will mention as rebecca said no one is laid to rest at these sites but five total from these two disasters are laid to rest at arlington so two yes. astronauts from the challenger and three from the columbia are additionally remains that have been identified for them have been placed in individual grave sites not too far from where these memorials are. So the um, are in most of them are in section 46, um, which is the same section that these the memorials are in. Um, Captain Smith, though, is in 7A. Uh, Captain Smith from the Challenger is in 7A, which is pretty close to Stu Rusa. So um, some mm -hmm. of the astronauts involved in these tragedies are also laid to rest in Arlington. And I will mention that in 2017, lawmakers passed a bill to put an additional memorial to the Apollo 1 tragedy. So um, a question was sort of raised. It's actually a bipartisan bill. Both sides of the aisle sort of said, well, we've got these memorials to Challenger Columbia and particularly at Arlington. Thousands of school kids go and visit these memorials every year when they come and watch the changing of the guard. You know, they're learning about these tragedies, but 
school kids today aren't really learning about Apollo One. And so members of Congress said, we really need to have like a memorial and a very trafficked part of Arlington, uh, potentially right next to these other ones, so that people remember Apollo One, because you really have to seek out Grissom and Chaffee's grave. You have to know where it is. It isn't necessarily... And you have to know that they're there. You have to know that they're there. Too. And then you have to kind of know where that section is. Uh, and I, I really love that this bill passed. It passed in 2017. That was five years ago. Um, there's still no memorial to Apollo 1 at Arlington National Cemetery. But I sincerely hope that at some point that will come to fruition because um, certainly as a guide, it would be so helpful to have a memorial uh, to have an element that is near where many visitors come to kind of remind us that the challenger isn't the first, right? I think that, like you said, especially for Gen X, you sort of think that's the first big shuttle disaster and it's not. It's really not. And I feel, I think there should, you know, I've long thought there should be an Apollo one memorial of some kind. It's, it's overdue. Um, the, most people don't know about it. Everybody like kind of around our age has heard of the challenger. It's very much in the conversation, but um, the Apollo one disaster is not. And so I'm hopeful that they, they pass in 2017. Maybe we'll see one at some point. soon. <laughs> nobody moves fast. <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> well, this, uh, and that, Oh, sorry. No, I was just gonna say, this is just so fantastic. I think, um, at Arlington, we tend to focus very much on military engagement. And again, every one of these individuals has military service in their background. These are all people who serve in the Army, the Air Force, uh, and various elements of the military, many uh, fly missions in combat. Um, but it's nice to be reminded, too, that so many of those laid to rest at Arlington have continued to give and serve their country in other ways in addition to in uniform. And so I think this was such a great topic for Memorial Day and a reminder um, that so many of those laid Rest at Arlington represent, I think, like you were saying about John Glenn, sort of the 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 American story. They represent the promise of America, the spirit of America in a really beautiful way. Yes. Um, and to answer a question I get a lot, Neil Armstrong is not buried at Arlington. He did not wish to be. His ashes were scattered at sea. Apparently, Neil Armstrong was kind of a private guy. Very, very really, quiet, very uh, introverted. Did not enjoy the experience of fame. Um, that was brought to him because of being the first man when he did that was not his, his jam. Um, so he is not at Arlington. Uh, but yes, so Arlington is, they, we will have many more episodes about Arlington because there's an endless amount of topics. There are so many interesting uh, and cool people, but um, this is a happy Memorial Day, everyone. And, um, you know, we try every year to emphasize what the, the holiday is about. Uh, and so that's sort of why we talk a lot about Arlington is that this is who the holiday is really for. Um, it is for uh, people who've given their lives in the service of their country. And certainly Gus Grissom and Roger Chaffee are two of them. Um, so thank you guys for coming along and uh, stay cool out there. It's, it's pretty hot and we'll be back with you in another couple weeks. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.